we are still in Mark 11. We're going to start, uh, go back a few verses from uh, where it says in your, uh, uh, your bulletin, if you have one. We're going to be on uh, Mark 11, verse 12. Um, this is a, a time in uh, Jesus' life. Remember, we just got through with the triumphal entry, and we're uh, in the last week of his life, actually the last few days of his life. And so uh, a lot of the Gospels, 40% of the Gospels are this last week. And so uh, this is important. We, we didn't hit this last week, but we're gonna, I'm just going to read these first few verses to see we can get uh, uh, going with it. Um, verses 12 through 14. Um, now, before I do this, I think I've said this before. And you know, um, when you're a pastor, uh, you say a lot of things. Um, and you say a lot of things that get heard. Uh, and so uh, you try, I try to be precise and clear and uh, truthful. Uh, but, you know, once in a while, <laughs> you sum up things maybe a little off. I, I, I think I've said that Jesus never did another miracle after, uh, you know, after the triumphal entry his last week. No, not quite. It's almost true. I think we could just change. He never did a, any more positive miracle where he, you know, the healings and stuff. So, verse 12. On the following day, this is after his uh, triumphal entry, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. So at this point, all he said is, that hasn't said much about it yet. We're going to get that in a little bit. But why fig tree? You know, I mean, I don't have, anybody know? I like fig newtons. I don't know if that's the, uh, figs aren't around here as much in the Middle East. They're a big deal. Uh, they're, they're, they're good things. Um, and I, I think when he, when he does this, you got to think about the way he always thinks as a Jew. And I, I think we miss that sometimes when we get into the Gospels. Jesus was Jewish. He primarily came to talk to Jewish people at first, although the Gentiles were included. So understanding things, um, I think that's what we have to do. The fig tree is used as a metaphor in, for Israel in the Old Testament. You see this in Hosea. The Lord says, O Israel, when I found you, it was like finding fresh grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the first ripe figs of the season. But then they deserted me for Baal Paor, giving themselves to that shameful idol. Soon they became vile, as vile as the God they worshipped. Now, a couple things going on here. You all know Baal Peor, right? I mean, it's, I don't know if there's any baby Baal Peors around. It's not a name that gets used a lot. This was a, we don't really even know what Peor means, but it's a place. Remember, in the Old Testament, the high places were the places you worshipped pagan idols and foreign gods. And this is what they were doing. You know, you're my, you're my fig tree. It's, it's a metaphor for what Israel is. And so Jesus, cursed, you know, saying to the fig tree, cursed, there's probably more going on here. And we're going to find that out after he has a little encounter in the temple here. Uh, but remember another thing. We'll hit this in a little bit later. Mountains were places where pagan, pagan deities were worshipped. And they become an obstacle to, to following God, both in, in thinking about in metaphor and in reality. Uh, when I was in Israel, we went up to 
well, actually, this was in Jordan. When you go near Petra, you can climb this place up, going all the way up about a 30-minute hike to what, and it's just called the high place. And you go there, and it's untouched. And what's really interesting, if you look off into the west, you can see uh, Aaron's tomb, which is kind of cool, over a big ravine. But this is a, the, the, everything's there. It was a place where they probably sacrificed infants. It was a pagan altar. You know, this was something that Israel went after. You know, you were my fig tree. So think about that mountain idea. The mountain both is a place you worship foreign idols and it becomes a metaphor for a obstacle in your life in, in both Psalms, Proverbs, and definitely in Isaiah. So even in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 7 and 8 is really talking about destruction that's coming to Israel. I will surely consume them. There will be no more harvest of figs and grapes. Their fruit trees will all die. Whatever I gave them will soon be gone. I, the Lord, have spoken. You know, so there's something going on with this fig tree stuff. Now, if this was an apple tree or another tree, it wouldn't be, this is a fig tree. This is big. So we'll get to that in a minute. But let's go to the place uh, Jesus uh, has a little encounter with them in the temple. Um, so verse 15, and they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Let that verse set there for a minute. We're going to look at what the temple looked like back then. Um, he wouldn't let anybody, anything in the temple. Pretty cool. We've kind of missed this. And he was teaching them and saying to them, It is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowds were astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city, they probably the disciples and Jesus. So, again, verse 16 is key. It appears that Jesus took over the temple for a while. And you get this in Matthew, too. We kind of miss this. We kinda, you know, I've, I've seen, you know, you, Jesus comes in, he's like, I don't like that. And then, and then leaves. You know, I don't think it was that way. It says until evening. So he comes in the middle of the day and he takes over. Doesn't anybody leave? You think he had like a, how did he do that? He had like a machine gun? I mean, it's interesting that he did this. We, we, we kind of miss this. You know, well, why is he so upset? Well, you know, pilgrims to Jerusalem for the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover. If you remember, Passover is the, the, the Passover date, and then you got the Unleavened Bread week after that. So it's like an eight-day festival. It ha you had to buy your sacrificial animals from the temple stock because, remember, the Passover lamb had to be pure. It had to be unblemished. It always got inspected. Um, and you had to use temple coins. I just read they found a whole bunch of uh, Roman coins in an archaeological dig. It's right around the time of Constantine. But, but, but you had Roman coins. Well, you had to get them. And then you had coins that were coined up in uh, northern Israel, Galilee, and from Rome. And you had come down where you had to have. So there was both exchange rates and the fact that you had to have the right stock, which in the, should have been fine, right? Because you, you got these people, they're, you know, you got the leaders that come in, they're like, well, yeah, that's okay, we'll help you out. That's not the way it was going. The religious system of sacrifice in the temple was being exploited 
by those who controlled the quality and price of the sacrifice, along with the exchange rate. You could just gouge people. It was so easy to do. And you know what group we know from Josephus and other places was the ones who pretty much controlled the temple. We had the Levites, of course, but it was the Sadducees. They were the ones, and they were the majority in, in the Sanhedrin. And so Jesus, is, he's upset at these guys. This is supposed to be a place to come and worship. Now, every church I've been in, including this one, I think even this building, you'll have people come up, you know, is it okay if we do Girl Scout cookies? And, uh, and I said, well, you can do it, but I'm going to come and turn it over. Is that the, is that the same thing, you know? You know, you got to be so careful with this. You know, we, we don't, most, this hasn't been a big deal, but some churches, I've been in churches where it's like, I don't know if I'm worshiping or just buying stuff. You know, maybe we should put on the church app, you can buy your, you know, your Grace Church shirts. And, you know, of course, we'll have to charge a little bit of a, you know, you know a little bit more than you probably get them in the store, you know. But you see how this can take, it probably didn't happen overnight is my, my point. Couldn't you see it? You're a Sadducee. Or it's like, well, we got these people coming down. You don't need to bring your own lamb. That takes time. We'll just get you a lamb when you get down here. Get you a nice, perfect lamb. And then it may have been benevolent at first, but because they forgot what we were doing, and think about that. When you come to worship, what are you trying to do? When you come to offer your sacrifice back then, what were you doing? Were you just say, get her done so I can have some lamb to eat? You know, no, and even here, it's like, you know, you're all here today, so I will give you a point, but, you know, we're not here to get points, right? We're here to worship, you know, pray, get closer to God, respond back to Him, and that's the problem. Um, he, you know, Mark mentions pigeons. This is, if you remember back from the nativity account in Luke, pigeons were the sacrifice of the poor. If you can't give a lamb or a goat or a cow, you give. You could give a couple birds. It's cheaper, you know. And so it's kind of like you're gouging the poor here. You're gouging the people. So and Jesus quotes a couple passages here. So you know, from this, you're saying, well, how do you know it was all this problem? Well, we knew it from outside evidence. But does Jesus seem to be happy with this system or upset? Well, let's go with the upset. And so it probably wasn't a good system. And he quotes a couple different places. Isaiah 56, I will bring them to my holy mountain of Jerusalem, and I will fill them with joy in my house of prayer. I will accept their burnt offerings and sacrifices because the temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. We miss that. They think they missed it too. And then in Jeremiah, this is, do you, don't you yourselves admit that this temple, the temple that was about to be destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, which bears my name, has become a den of thieves. Surely I see all the evil going on here. I, the Lord, have spoken. And you get to chapter, later chapter 7, chapter 8, Jeremiah comes and says, it's over. This is getting destroyed. So all of this corrupt money changing and selling was held in the court of Gentiles, which was supposed to be a place where they could come and pray. It's this non-Jews seeking Yahweh. The temple was the main evangelistic place for Judaism. And this is what an artist rendition, this is what we think it looked like. This is Herod's temple, but here's people. They're not very big. Well, they are big. It's just the temple's bigger. 
But this is what it would look like when you came in. This is the huge thing. This is in here is the holy place, and then back would be the holy of holies. So this is what you would come up to. You know, there's stories outside of the Bible. It says this, it was gold, it was gleam. You could, you could see it, see its effects from 50 miles away. And remember, Jerusalem sits upon a hill no matter which direction you come. So this was an amazing place to come into. And this is what it looked like. And you can see the people are really, really little. They're almost one dot. So here's, the, here's, again, the place where the priests did their work. Here and here, past these walls, is where you would have the sacrifice. This is the court of women, and this is the court of where Jews can be. And then out here, past these walls, mostly here, can't quite see it here, and all this area is the court of Gentiles. This is where people can come. I don't know, you guys can do maybe, how many people can get in this thing? You know, there's people saying there might have been a million people in in, in uh, Jerusalem during the Passover that Jesus was killed. Might be why Pilate's a little bit worried. You get a million people going after you, it can take over a city really fast. But so out here is where they set up their tables. So, yeah, I mean, you think about it. Somebody comes in, they're wanting to pray, you know, you know, something really, you know, Baruch Atah, you know, the Hebrew prayers. And they're haggling over the price of a lamb over here, you know. But Jesus comes in and takes over. You know, so when you, this is kind of an aerial view of it. Again, here, here is the court of Gentiles outside here. And Solomon's porch is kind of this area here. If you look on here, this is where, this is probably where, my opinion, <laughs> you get my opinion, I'll tell you when it's an opinion, this is, I think this might, over in this area, might be where Pentecost happened. I don't know. You can go where you want with that. It would make sense. You could get 3,000 people over there. Um, but that's Solomon's porch is over in that area. So, so his action is a judgment against the leaders of his people, and he's doing that. We'll see the, the fig tree judgments coming pretty fast. In, Jer in Jeremiah 7, the prophet foretells the destruction of the temple if they don't repent. Jesus predicts the same thing for this generation in a few days. We'll get that in, in Mark 13. What is the old adage? You probably heard it. You know, a, a people who do not remember their history are destined to repeat it. <laughs> There's so much the same here. You know, and I hesitate to use the word, but it does sound kind of stupid, doesn't it? I mean, read your history, you know, when you're coming to this. Now, both in the Old and the New Testament, there's a lack of repentance that leads to judgment. It's true and for people. It's true for people groups. It's always the same. That's the gospel, right? You want judgment? You'll get it. If you want grace, repent. Follow me. And then a lesson from the cursed fin tree. So, it, it, again, remember, this is, you might not have thought about this, but it looks like to me in Mark and certainly Matthew that Jesus takes it over. Um, and think about that. You tell me. Maybe you can get in your life groups and think, how in the heck did he take over that big place? I mean, who does he think he is? That, my friends, is the question we've been trying to figure all through these. That's what Mark's trying to get us to understand. We're going to see a little bit where other people think he is. So 20 through 25. So we've had the fig tree. He said, we don't really know it's cursed yet. We just, he might have just been saying, you know, I hope things don't work out for you. But as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. This thing died in a day. I know some of you people aren't, don't have green thumbs, but you can't kill things that fast, right? 
This is a miracle. It's not a positive miracle, is it? And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive your trespasses. That is an interesting answer. I, I know we could take this text and think, well, if I ask anything I want, anything? What's he talking about? You know, well, how's this go? You know, it's often misunderstood here that, you know, it's not understood as historical and theological. Why is he doing the fig tree thing? You know, you could take this as like if you've got a competitor that has really nice figs, you could go over and curse their tree and then their figs will be worse than yours. If you believe, of course. You know, it's used that way. But set in its context, the, the cursed fig tree represents the judgment to come upon Israel for its disobedience. This is key. I mean, we have to remember it. They lack faith in God. What, how's he start this? Have faith in God. Trust, trust, trust me. Something's different here. Have faith in God. Trust him. For what? What are you trusting him for? I mean, we all know this, right? I mean, if you ask for something really evil, you kind of know he doesn't mean that, right? I mean, that doesn't fit his character. Think about it. When, when Jesus says in John 14, ask anything in my name and you will get, what does he mean by my name? Do you ever pray in Jesus' name? I hope you do. Do you have to end it that way? You can. I think it's okay too. I'm about 50-50. Half the time I'll end it. We just did, the, with the kids, we just did the Lord's Prayer. How Does that end in Jesus' name? Amen? No. Doesn't mean you can't do that. Well, in fact, let's think about it. all the prayers in the Bible. How many have been that way? None. So none of them are in Jesus' name. I did that at, at a group prayer thing once a few years back. Uh, it was a I don't know if it's secular, but it wasn't you know a worship service or anything. I gave a prayer that request, and I just said Amen at the end, and then went off and of course got my free meal because you know. I'll pray, you pay, you know, that's the way it works. But somebody, and they were very nice, I mean, don't get me wrong, but they said, you know, you didn't say in Jesus' name. And of course, you know, being the benevolent pastor, I said, so? I kind of knew who they were, I mean, I knew them, so I could say this. But we talked about it, I said, well, did, did, did what I pray, would Jesus, would it, would it honor Jesus? Well, well, well yeah. Would, would, is it something that Jesus would 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 be helped by, would be wanting us to, yeah, yeah. And we went on and I said, well, isn't that, that's what in his name means, in his character. That's what you want to do. Because you, you could do the other one. You could say, oh, Lord, please help my competitor's fig trees wither and die. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah. Good luck with that one. You know, what's he talking about? The last verse helps us. It's a, this is really about forgiveness, isn't it? Think about that. Perhaps I'll divulge this at the end of the sermon. Perhaps I won't, but 
There are certain prayers you can pray that will always be answered. Those would be good to know, wouldn't they? Well, come back next. No, I'm just kidding. But we'll tell you what they are. I mean, one of them is forgiveness, right? If you truly are repentant of your sins, if you truly want to follow Jesus, he didn't die on that cross, so he had to jump through a bunch of hoops. He died on the cross so you would accept him. And so if you truly want to follow him, he'll accept you. That is always true. And what we want to pray is those, always be praying those things that will always be. He will always forgive you. He will always give you what you need. So forgiveness, presence. He will always protect you from evil. That's the Lord's Prayer, folks. <laughs> it's really not that hard. You know, those are the things I think we should want to pray. So, the gospel is that Jesus came to save sinners. We see this in 1 Timothy. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. That's Paul, not me. But in some ways, we all could be the worst, right? So Jesus' promises in 23 and 24 are referring to the forgiveness given to those who truly repent and forgiven by God. That's, I mean, that's the context of this, along with an ability given to us by God to forgive others. That's also in the Lord's Prayer, if you did not notice that. And mountains. Say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea. I think we're supposed to take this in the way it was intended. We've already talked about mountains. They're metaphors for great obstacles. They're metaphor for sin. They're metaphor for violating the first of the Ten Commandments, which is, what is the first of the Ten Commandments? She'll have no other gods before me. And where did I just tell you most of those gods were worshipped? The mountains. If you go to Isaiah 54, if you go to Psalm 46, if you go to Isaiah 40, it has a really good, you can look these up yourself, a really good talk about how the mountains will be made low and the valleys will be lifted up. It's the metaphor for a flat place is where, that's where righteousness is. The mountains are these obstacles of sin and suffering, and that's what we're making those low. That's what he's talking about here. In fact, think of John the Baptist. It's, this is more uh, horizontal and not vertical. But remember what he said? Make straight the paths. Because a crooked path is a path of evil. A straight path is one that goes and follows Yahweh. So that's probably what he's talking. I mean, think about it in the long run. If you pray in the next week, I'm trying to think of the nearest mountain. Anybody where the nearest mountain is? We don't have any mountains in Iowa, do we? Crescent, yeah, I actually lived in there for a while. Um, Crescent Ski Hills. If you pray hard enough, we can move that sucker over to Denison. Say, you know. is that what he really wants us to do? And I hear people say, well, he we could. And they do say it that way. Oh, he could. It's not the point, folks. Well, think about it. You've got two choices. You can pray that God will, will help you through and not count your sin against you so you can live with him eternally and call him Father and have that mountain of evil and sin washed away and have that answered. Or you can have Crescent Ski Hills in my backyard. 
Which one do you want? How you answer that might tell you whether we need to have a special class for you or not. <laughs> That's really not that hard, is it? I mean, I don't think this is as hard as we make it. And the forgiveness, he's kind of summing up Matthew, and prob- this is probably where he gave this parable. In Matthew 18, he gives the parable, you know, talking about forgiveness, the parable of the, of the, the wicked servant, the unjust servant, who gets forgiven, you know, 10 bucks or millions of dollars, excuse me, billions of dollars, and then he goes and won't forgive somebody's debt of 10 bucks. And, then, and at the end of that, it's so pointed, you know, verse 35, and it's also at the end of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. If you forgive those who sin against you, your Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive those who sin against you, neither will your Father forgive you. So you tell me, is forgiveness of, with, of, of each other a requirement of a Christian or just kind of optional? It's hard, isn't it? It's hard when somebody sins against us because it's not natural. <laughs> it's almost like we have to give them grace. Well, you got grace. It's hard. I mean, I'm not saying it's easy. I mean, people can be, I mean, think about what some people have done to other people. But if, you for, if they ask forgiveness, you're, and I think that's almost a supernatural thing to some extent. But holding grudges is not a biblical way to live. But they are easy to do. If you're supposed to reconcile, think about the fact that if you believe in Jesus, you're reconciled to the Father. How much more would it be to just reconcile with someone else? Our last part. And they came to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, they're like, what's going to go on now? (laughs) The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority? Or who gave this authority to them to do them? Jesus said, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you what authority I do these things. One more illustration that Jesus is the smartest man who ever lived. Just it's amazing. It's always loved this. He always knows what he's doing. Isn't that nice? That's the Savior we follow. <laughs> the one who always knows what, what's going on. In fact, there's a song we used to you know, sing. There, he's got like the whole world in his hand. You want to sing it? Yeah, we got some songs coming up better than that one. So his authority is telling, he's back in the temple. You, I, I won't go into this, but in my mind, I'm like, they have to be coming like, <laughs> I mean, what he did a day ago had to be tough, but they're, they're asking about his authority. Uh, it's a good question. I think this is a really good question. I, I don't think their motives are good, but it's a really good question. Who or what do we trust as our ultimate authority? Ourselves? our thoughts, our feelings, other people, or God? That's a good question. Like I said, really, Christianity is the only not, well, Judaism, kind of the only non-navel-gazing 
religions out there. Everything else, especially Eastern religion, look inside yourself. There's your, there's your light. But Christianity says, no, no, I am the light of the world, Jesus said. Don't stay in darkness, follow me. You know, it's, it just fits. What you submit to as your authority will change the way you worship, the way you pray, the way you serve, and the way you live. Who's in charge of your life? This is key. These guys are still trying to figure out who he is, and I don't, they don't believe he's God, certainly. I don't think they believe he's the Messiah. In fact, they think pretty much negative things about him. But Jesus challenges them. He gives them an opportunity to believe. He always does that. And they knew he, he knew they weren't truly seeking him, and he doesn't really answer them. I think it's an interesting way to go about it. The Lord God, he is not obliged to answer them. Have you found that out yet? I mean, you can ask God any question you want. And you know what's the hardest question to answer in this world for us? Why? Why did you allow this? Why did you cause this? Why is hard? And God will give you what you need. I think we've already seen that. And I think I, you should ask the why questions. Half of the, or more than half of the Psalms are why questions. But come with your hat in your hand. Make sure you know who you're talking to. God does have any, he has, he has no obligation to tell you the why. I mean, he gives you the whys you need. I can tell you why bad things happen because we're in a fallen world. But why that exact bad things happens to you or me, that's a little harder. But do you want to follow the one that can get you through it or do you want to try to do it on your own? Or just run the other way? Makes no sense to me logically how someone can say, I can't believe in a God that has allowed this suffering in my life. So now you're suffering and you have no hope of eternal life. If you follow Jesus, you're going to go through suffering and he will come through it with you will have eternal life and that hope which nobody can take away so these motives you can see they were worried about themselves they won't even answer the question about john because of it but he's con continuing he will to act and teach during this week before his crucifixion he doesn't do any more miracles but he does a lot of teaching he shows his authority by judging many of the jewish leadership and taking over the temple I mean, this could be like Rambo 6 if we want. I mean, this is good stuff without the, the bad parts. You know? I mean, it, he also teaches his disciples the most important theological lesson. Judgment will come to those who don't have faith in God. I mean, that's what he's saying. Do you want judgment or grace? That's always binary in the Bible. It's always that way. But those who do trust in him can be assured that their sins will be forgiven. This is one of those prayers. You, if you truly are repentant, he will, there's no sin that you have that is stronger than the ability of the cross to wash away. Always remember that. And it all starts with just following him. And then you're in the family. You can call God Father. And you don't receive judgment. You, you receive grace. And you have the strength to obey him. And you have the strength to forgive others. And it's almost like you look like you're really have repented and followed him. Let us pray. Father, as this last week, so many wonderful teachings that we get, but yet we know the cross is in the background. Um, when we ask for forgiveness, I hope each one of us realize what it took for that barrier uh, to be bridged, that it took the death of your son. Um, 
something he didn't deserve, something that we did, but yet your grace flows through and all we have to do is accept it. So for each one of us, may we not just realize if we've come to know you that we have uh, been saved by grace, but help us remember we live by grace too. And we thank you for that. Amen.